welcome back to Brailcast Extra. Coming up for this time, Braille at School. A breakout session from the Six Dots to Success conference held on Wednesday the 4th of January 2023. It's presented by myself, Matthew Horsepool, and Melanie Pritchard. Hi and welcome as everyone joins us. I'm Mel Pritchard, Melanie or whatever you want to call me. And uh, I work with the Brailers Foundation as a volunteer. As you may have heard, I've been running the Braille for beginners and uh, I have always read Braille, uh, well, ever since I could read, because I was born with no sight or very little vision, so very passionate about Braille and really, really pleased to be asked to help host this workshop this morning. So in a few moments, we'll have Matthew tell us all about where he's coming from and what he does. But before that, let's just have a quick look at what we're going to be covering. We've sort of split the topic of Braille in schools. We split it into three main parts. I've got here in my notes, I've got who, why and how. Now, who should learn Braille? Why um, the importance of learning Braille and how best to do it? So we've kind of got three parts to this workshop. And once we've done a little bit of description, we'll be having hopefully lots of your comments because I feel sure everyone's got lots of important information to pass on to each other too. So before we start on the whole thing of who should learn Braille, Matthew, maybe you'd like to tell everyone a little bit about where you're coming from. Indeed. Uh, Good morning, everyone. My name is Matthew Horsepool. I'm from the Brailleists Foundation. I'm the general manager at the Brailleists Foundation. In a previous life, I was the Braille transcriber at Exel Grange School in Coventry. I held that post for about five years. If I look young now, I looked even younger back then. I was only about 21 when I took up that post and really had no idea what I was doing, except for the fact that I'm blind and a lifelong Braille user, Braille reader, Braille writer. Um really just wouldn't be without Braille. And we'll talk more about that as we go through the session. But I knew what Braille should look like, or at least I thought I knew what Braille should look like. Then I bought the Braillist manual and learned what it should actually look like. But uh, I did some transcribing and also ended up teaching some of the more technical aspects of Braille to the students. So Braille maths and Braille science and uh, Braille foreign languages, and occasionally would deputise for the Braille teacher when the Braille teacher was off and would do one-to-one braille lessons and so have in one fashion or another taught everything right from the alphabet right the way through to very technical codes like maths and science so that's what qualifies me to be here and uh, it'd be lovely to just run through this session if people have comments or questions or, or what have you put your hand up put a note in the chat or something we'll check it as we go through i'll turn it back over to mel and it'll start off like a lecture but hopefully it won't sound like it by the end You've obviously heard me before. I do not do lectures, Matthew. I do hope not anyway. (laughs) Let's start with um, who should be taught Braille. And I was very fortunate because I was taught Braille from a very early age because I couldn't see well enough to read print. So there was no choice unless no one was ever going to teach me to read. So obviously people with no vision, it's their only way of reading. But I don't really think it should always be totally blind people, people with deteriorating vision. I suppose it's probably tempting to think, oh, well, they can see well enough to read. They can, you know, okay, maybe they can't see the board, but, you know, if we make it a bit bigger and we make it a bit bigger and they can read and they can read. But 
if their vision is deteriorating, what if by secondary school they can't read? So in my mind, if there is a chance they're going to need that Braille in the future, I think we'll all agree that it's easier to learn something when you're young. So deteriorating vision really matters too, doesn't it? And, you know, sometimes if your eyes are weak anyway, by the end of the day, your eyes are struggling and it's just difficult to keep going and reading and reading. So maybe those people should have Braille. It's just giving people an alternative. Do you have anything to add to that, Matthew? Not as such, but just to underline that point, a question has come through in the chat already from Alison, which is fantastic. Let's keep those coming. How do you convince a school to teach somebody Braille when they don't think it's necessary? And it's a really important question. And I can underline that with a particular story. We had a a child at Texel. The child was on the border between two local authorities and uh, was closer to the other local authority than ours. So we didn't actually really want to take this case on. But um, (laughs) we did because technically he was in our catchment. And there was a big question about whether or not we should teach Braille or not. And uh, we actually felt that we probably should teach Braille even though it was going to cost us quite a lot of money because we were going to have to go out you know, to the other side of the county in order to do it. So we had a meeting with the parents and said all this and the parents really weren't terribly interested and the school wasn't terribly interested. And uh, anyway, they brought them in to see me. And um, knowing that I didn't have an awful lot to lose at this point, I said, well, I said, the thing is, Braille is just so important, all this. And they said, well, yeah, but the thing is, if we learn Braille, if we teach him Braille, then it's like we're switching off his eyes. That was the comment that I got. And I said, well, I suppose I said that is exactly what we're doing, actually. We're, we're switching off his eyes. But has it ever occurred to you that actually his eyes need to be switched off from time to time? Because if we're dealing with a partially sighted person, not necessarily a partially sighted child, a partially sighted adult as well, actually what you're dealing with here is somebody whose eyes don't work quite as well. So we constrain them and make them work really hard. But if we do that too much then actually all we're going to do is make those eyes tired out more early. So at the end of the day, when the child wants to run around in the playground or cross the road to get home and doesn't want to use blind methods to cross the road to get home, you know, if the child had used Braille in school, then actually the eyes would be awake enough to be able to support that. Whereas actually, if we didn't use Braille in school, you know, if we were were forcing that child to use print, then the eyes would be so tired by the end of the day that they wouldn't be able to see to cross the road and they wouldn't be able to see to play in the playground. And then you run with, you know, accidents and all sorts of things. So that really helped the parent, I think, to come to terms with it. And it worked rather well. In terms of convincing the child, I mean, really the same sort of argument, really. The thing to be aware of, is that the larger you go in terms of font size, the bigger the book is going to be. And that might sound really obvious, but actually sooner or later, the child is going to have to make a choice between very, very, very large print, which is extremely large, or Braille, which is in many ways a lot smaller. Obviously, if, if you're reading size 16 or 24, it may not be smaller. But if you're up to the point of reading size 36 or size 48, Braille is probably actually going to be smaller and more discreet. And actually, some of this Braille technology that's out there nowadays is really quite smart. You've written here on the notes, Matthew, haven't you? Your peers think you're cool with a Braille display. And that's actually quite true. And I think the comment about the child with RP, I think it said RP, that's a difficult one because, of course, people with RP can read quite small print because they have central vision. Their central vision is quite good. And so that is really a difficult one. And I think the only thing I would say is convincing parents, I'm looking, trying to cover all this if I can, Parents want their children to be as normal as possible. It's absolutely natural, I suppose, and fully understandable. 
But having seen someone like Matthew in the school probably helped those parents make that choice because certainly when I was teaching some of the teaching assistants and teachers of visually impaired, they hadn't really met and interacted with someone in my position with practically no vision. And that just seems ridiculous when you think about it, but they just hadn't really met a real blind person. And we went out for meals and I nearly knocked my wine over and or whatever else, you know, and it was just good to put all that stuff into practice with real people. But I think Matthew's right. The new technology does make it easier for children and their parents to accept the need for Braille because Braille is a lot cooler than it used to be. I mean, my notes now are on sort of really boring manila Braille paper and they're tucked underneath and that's what, and if I hadn't got those notes, I wouldn't be talking to you now because I'd just run out of things to say. So now, you know, you've got Braille displays. I have got a Braille display on my desk as well, but it's much cooler to be able to use an iPad in the classroom, to be able to use any of this new technology for their peers as well so it is a difficult one and it's also difficult convincing the schools so I'm not sure that I have any actual answers just how important it is to try and get that message across do you think that's fair Matthew? Yeah I do think that's fair and I think if we're talking about modern technology like an iPad it's cool to use an iPad but if you're using an iPad with say speech synthesis that iPad is either going to talk and really quite loudly and quite slowly to start with and thus distract the rest of the class or the child is going to have headphones in and actually, yes, you might look cool with an iPad on but as soon as you start putting headphones on and you're not able to interact socially with the rest of the class that cool factor goes away and so where a braille display really helps is that you're using a normal piece of technology like an iPad but you're able to do it in a way that doesn't distract you from the rest of the class. I wanted to talk about why we use Braille in school, just to sort of bridge the gap between the who should learn and the why. Going back to large print and how big and bulky it is, the other big problem with large print, of course, is how to format it. Because when you've got big things, when you've got tables and things like that with several columns, that is going to be very difficult to format across very large print. Now, admittedly, it can be quite difficult to format in Braille as well, but you've got more of a chance of it, I think, in Braille because of the way the medium operates. And Kate in the chat there makes a very good point about eye strain and Elizabeth McCann similarly about listening to things. They're both very good points. You know, actually, yes, you don't want to promote eye strain and you don't you don't want to promote ear strain either. Actually, a lot of blind and partially sighted people uh, will have sensory overload and things like that, where they just if you're listening to the same thing all the time, you know, like a synthetic speech or trying to listen to synthetic speech at the same time as a big crowd, you might find that quite difficult. It's also true with the business of equations and maths and things like that that scare me half to death So I was never very good at maths. But there are certain things that just don't lend themselves as well to speech. And I'm not saying that I don't use speech because I use it all the time and I love it. But I think we said equations on this chat here. And it's really important, I think, to be able to, if you want to, to discover with your hands, something like, you know, the mathematical side of things. We'll get onto all the codes and things later on. But yeah, and with a magnifier, even if you've got a smallish piece of paper and you're using a magnifier, that business of trying to find the right bit, it's clunky, it's awkward, it's, it can be embarrassing. So there's lots of reasons behind this, isn't there, Matthew, really? 
I think there are. And hopefully some of that is summed up in um, the question that Alison put in the chat. Yeah. And I've seen the part about neck strain and I will really identify with that because I use a magnifier. I couldn't use a magnifier when I was younger, but I do now. And it's hugely important, the posture. And even teaching Braille, actually, I spend my time saying to people how important it is to be comfortable when you're reading because you spend a long time sitting, reading, and you need to be comfortable for your own body. I've seen Jackie's question about note takers. We'll come back to it at the end because there's a section on note takers at the end. And so we'll deal with it then. But thank you for the question. Um, In terms of why Braille, I think a lot of reasons actually have already come out in the chat. We've missed some of the really obvious ones, though. Helps with spelling and with punctuation and with capitalization capitalization i think is in some ways the most important of those um i mean spelling and punctuation okay so yeah you can kind of get a sense of punctuation through listening not as good a sense i don't think as if you're reading particularly with things like semicolons and colons and things like that where actually a lot of sighted people don't really know where to use colons and semicolons but if you've read books you might stand a chance of understanding it spelling well you can argue whether braille really helps with spelling because of all of the contractions and i don't really want to get into that argument here all that i would say is that sometimes you think in braille i certainly do if i'm looking to spell a word I'll think about it in Braille first, whereas a sighted person, I think, would visualise the word in letters. I would visualise it and then expand the contractions. You know, how do you spell theatre? Well, okay, so theatre, T-H-E sign, A-T-R-E, and then you expand it back and you get T-H-E, A-T-R-E, and so on. But capitalisation is, I think, the dark horse here because everybody thinks they know how to capitalise. They think, oh, well, yes, okay, a capital goes for a proper name and at the start of a sentence... Well, that's fine. The question is, what constitutes a proper name? And again, I think everybody thinks they know this. And I think most people do. I don't want to say that they don't. But every so often, I think we'll get tripped up by something. Mine was the post office. You go down the high street and you encounter the butcher with a lowercase b, the baker with a lowercase b, the candlestick maker, if you want to follow the rhyme. But then you get to, you know, the bank with a lowercase b and the post office with a lowercase p and a lowercase o because everything else on the high street has a lowercase at the start except the post office doesn't because the post office is in fact the name of the organization was previously the general post office or the gpo when you think about it like that it suddenly becomes very obvious but the post office always has a capital p and a capital o because it's the name of the institution in the same way that barclays would have a capital b nationwide would have a capital n but That had not registered. It just hadn't because it didn't make any sense to me that the post office would have a capital P and a capital O. Until I read it, ironically enough, I was reading a Braille transcription passage that one of the Exalt staff had sent in and um, it had got a capital on post office and I asked why the capital was there on post office and I was in in my 20s when this was happening and was told then that the post office must be capitalised. So things like that are out to catch people out, I think. And it's the sort of thing that if you've read with capital letters all your life, then you're going to know this sort of stuff. But if you're not, you know, if you're used to listening to things and you're not reading and you're not taking things in, then you're probably going to miss some of those nuances and some of those subtleties of grammar and spelling that I think a lot of us just take for granted. Did you mention homophones as well when we were chatting too? Because you wouldn't hear those in speech, would you? No, you wouldn't. So there and there, here and here, and so on and so on. In fact, homophones there and here in particular, I think are quite interesting in Braille because there 
T-H-E-R-E and here, H-E-R-E, both have a dot five at the start. And so I tend to remember them that way. And then T-H-E-I-R is odd and H-E-A-R is odd, obviously. But the E-R-E ones are both the dot five ones. And I find that quite a useful thing. But yeah, absolutely. Do we use dot five T-H-E or do we use four, five, six T-H-E? And once you know that, and once you know the difference between them in print, you then start to understand the difference between there and there and here and here and various other homophones that come out. You've covered spatial awareness a little bit already. Uh, We talked about layout and such, didn't we? But that's something else that's really, really important. And tables, headers and footers. I mean, I don't think I would have such a good idea of all that if I didn't use Braille. It's something you would miss, isn't it, if you didn't have Braille? I think so. And I think actually as a Braillist, you don't realise you're going to miss it until you actually miss it. I think we take it for granted that when we get a Braille book, it's going to have page numbers in it in the same way as a sighted person, I think, takes it for granted when they get a print book, there's going to be page numbers in it. And um, the idea that you actually have to add page numbers to your Word documents is quite a foreign one for many blind people. And I know a lot of blind people who would say, why would I want to do that? Why do I want to add page numbers? It's just an extra bit of hassle. And um, I was one of those until I received a Braille book that didn't have page numbers in. And all of a sudden, I had to try and find things in this book with no page numbers. And it was the most difficult thing. I mean, I I really struggled, actually, to to such an extent that I put in a complaint about the book that didn't have page numbers, but it also drew my attention to the importance of it. And I can certainly imagine what a document looks like with page numbers and without them. And without that, I don't think I would be quite so sympathetic to the needs of people who need page numbers in their Word documents. And the same goes, you know, for tables. Obviously, a 10-column table in Braille is not going to be very easy to do you know, look at spreadsheets that are 20 columns wide, you're never going to be able to braille that. But a table that is two columns or three columns wide, that is certainly possible to do in braille. And once you understand the concept of what a two or three or four column table looks like, I certainly find tables and spreadsheets and things a lot easier to handle knowing conceptually what that table looks like. It has to be said, it'd be also difficult to do a table like that in size 48 as well. You'd have awfully big paper, wouldn't you? So it kind of works both ways. Kate makes an interesting point that actually you can braille very wide tables across two or three pages. And yes, you absolutely can do that. I don't find them terribly easy to read, but yes, you can do it. And yes, I have done it if I've needed to, if there's been a particular need for things to be in a table. The rest of the chat, I think, is mostly about reading schemes. The thing about reading schemes is that... There's Braille and there's print, and you kind of have to find a way of marrying them up as best as you can, because what's logical to teach in Braille is not necessarily what's logical to teach in print. Back in the, I want to say the 80s or the 90s, but I forget exactly when it was, two schemes were developed. There was a scheme called Braille for Infants, and there was a scheme called Takeoff. And Takeoff naturally followed from Braille for Infants, and it all worked out very well, and it was all aligned with the primary school curriculum of the time, and the reading scheme worked very well. Braille for Infants is still being sold, but under a different name, it's called Hands-On. Takeoff is still being sold and is still called Takeoff, and there's a supplementary scheme called the Abbey Books, which run alongside the Takeoff books. Unfortunately, the national curriculum for primary schools has changed quite considerably, and the reading schemes haven't kept up with those changes. So you find that a lot of people, they use takeoff because it's all that's available, but actually, really and truly, they'd rather not use it because it's a bit antiquated and it doesn't follow the curriculum in the right order. Unfortunately, I don't have an answer to it. 
and I don't really want to spend vast amounts of time in the session talking about it because I don't have an answer to it. Certainly it's something I know that the View curriculum group are aware of and are doing quite a lot of work on at the moment, but for the time being, that's where we are. However, it raises interesting questions about what could be done as an alternative. And I think one of the biggest mistakes, well, I would call it a mistake anyway, one of the biggest mistakes that I've seen is this idea of learning tables, is this idea that Braille has to be taught in this very regimented fashion, and you couldn't possibly introduce a child to a contraction until the contraction has been taught in the one-to-one Braille lesson. And I think there's certainly something to be said for that. You wouldn't want to daunt a child. You wouldn't want to give a child a grade two volume when the child is only learning the alphabet. But equally, some of the really hard contractions, and this applies particularly if you're dealing with small children, some of the really hard contractions are by and large related to vocabulary which the child isn't likely to come across. I'm looking at words like rejoice. We're at Christmas time at the moment, so rejoice is one that comes up quite a lot, RJC. But a child who is five or six is probably not going to come across that word terribly often. Similarly, you know, receive, perceive, conceive, all of those. And even some of the simpler contractions are not going to come up very often. So the fact that the vocabulary in the reading scheme is quite limited means that, I mean, certainly as far as I'm concerned, if you've got a child where blindness is the only need, you know, and so Braille is the only thing that you're having to do to adapt. Actually, if you give a child a book and it has a contraction that they've not come across, really and truly, I think the child is going to be inquisitive and is going to either ask the classmates what the word is or ask the teacher what the word is or read around it and figure out what the word is. And then at the next Braille lesson, we'll probably come to you and say, look, I found this contraction. What does this mean? But this would then allow, for example, use of the Oxford Reading Tree and use of mainstream reading curricula and just use them and see what happens. I don't know, Mel, if you've got anything to add to that. No, I think you've covered that. I think what I would like to move on to, something that is so important that sometimes people who can see take for granted and also I took for granted when I first started to learn Braille because I'd always read it with my hands It didn't occur to me that the people I would be teaching wouldn't have what we would call tactile skills, wouldn't be able to use their fingers effectively to read. And I learned the hard way and had to almost learn as I went along to teach people how to feel. And this, of course, is in some ways easier with children. It still is important, but through play, children can learn how to best and effectively use their hands, you're playing with Lego, playing with Play-Doh, baking, all these things where you're sort of putting things together, pulling them apart, anything that's encouraging children to use those fingers, because when the time comes then, they will be able to usefully move along the line, recognise the letters, track around the braille, when they get to diagrams, find their way around a diagram. But I think because most teachers, support workers, or learning assistants, learn visually, that isn't always obvious, but it's crucial because obviously if Braille isn't learned fluently, then it's not going to be very useful. So those tactile skills and building up the use of your fingers and the way your fingers travel around the pages, that's crucial to both adults and children's success with Braille. Wouldn't you agree, Matthew? Yeah, I definitely would agree with that. 
I missed the part about musical instruments and I know that's something that's close to your heart. I know you're going to pick me up on that. I wouldn't say pick up. I think it's different styles for different people, isn't it? And I certainly wouldn't say that one size fits all. And I think actually the best thing you can do if you're teaching anybody but particularly if you're teaching children is take some time particularly in a one-to-one setting to actually get to know the child and get to know the child's interests and what the child is going to respond well to and what the child is not going to respond so well to and be as adaptable as you can in terms of pre-braille in terms of reading material when you've got braille but yes a lot of blind children enjoy noise enjoy sound enjoy playing with things i certainly you know when i was young i used to quite enjoy learning new words and just saying them over and over again and playing around with you know what my voice could do and that that meant that i had an interest in really quite complicated words that most sighted children probably didn't have an interest in and of course it also then led to an interest in music and so I was interested in playing the recorder. Yeah, I was going to say the recorder. That's just what I was going to say, because really you're moving your fingers. So you're getting that dexterity with your fingers, which is really, really important. People who can see, they learn the alphabet in a particular way from A to J. And then we add the dot three to do K to T. And then we add the dots three to six to go from the through the rest of the alphabet in this what they call the decade pattern I think but that doesn't really matter and it's a natural way for someone who can see to learn braille but it really doesn't work does it Matthew for people who can't see when you're learning in a tactile way it's much more effective to learn not only the letters that are easier to feel but the letters that crop up a lot and then you can use words for practice so I mean okay a children's not going to maybe need the Q and the Z for loads and loads of words whereas an A and an L will crop up a lot so I think the method of learning I know that's covered in takeoff and all the other skill sets but it's still worth mentioning that it's a very different way of learning isn't it? Mm. And actually in the early days two signs a week may be a stretch you might find that you're teaching one sign a week or something or maybe one sign one week and two signs the next and so on and so on but that's the sort of pace that you're looking at it's probably going to take you about six months to actually teach somebody the alphabet as they get better at reading and writing and as they get more familiar with the concept of the fact that there's six dots and you can make various shapes with them then you might be able to introduce things a bit more quickly but I think it's important in addition to what we've said about word and letter shapes and things like that yes don't introduce the alphabet in order but you know to practice what you've done if you've introduced you know three or four letters try making as many words as you can with those three or four letters and again it goes back to what the students like and what they're interested in the first letters that I learned in school were the letters of my name so then I could write my name and then we learned the rest of the alphabet from then on and it's important as just in the same way as a sighted child would have print everywhere they look um you know things are labeled books have big words under the pictures and what have you and I think it can be done certainly when I was at school one of my first memories of braille was having my hands smacked I think because they did that in the 60s they're not loud now of course but for pulling the label off the radiator because I thought it was a bit of tape and I thought it was untidy things just had braille on them so as we were feeling our way around the school we were coming across braille and this kind of self-discovery where you've got braille any excuse to put it somewhere anywhere where the more they feel it the more it's going to make sense even things as simple as 
name labels and things like that. I had a conversation with somebody from a charity once and they said, why do we put Braille on our name badges? Because it's not like blind people are going to wander around and feel each other to, to feel what their names are. And I said, well, no, that's true. I said, but if you've got a box of 10 name badges, the child at least can determine independently which name badge is theirs. So even if it's not obvious to you why Braille should go on something, put it on it anyway, if you can. The co-op did this great thing, thinking about blind adults for a second, but the concept applies. They put Braille on food packaging, you know, on co-op's own brand. And again, a lot of people say, why would you do that? Because when you're in the co-op, you're not going to wander around and feel on the shelves for what you want. Well, some people might, but by and large, I agree with that sentiment. But when you get home and you're feeling on your shelves for what you've put away, or even when you're putting things away and you need to know what you're putting away, Braille can be extremely useful. So actually taking that to a level for a child, not necessarily in a school, but certainly to encourage parents around the house. If you've got three boxes of cereal, if you use something like sticky back plastic and put a label on each of those three boxes, then the child can find what cereal they want for breakfast. They can then learn in mobility lessons, pouring that cereal and pouring the milk onto the cereal and then you start to build up independence. But Braille is that foundation because with the Braille, they can independently choose what it is they want to have in the first place. And the more they're feeling that Braille, the more they're discovering it every day, the more that fluency is building up. And I think this is what we've mentioned before, being able to read as fluently as possible, as early as possible, just the same way as a child learns to read print. It's incredibly important. And we've also wanted to make the point as well, I think, Matthew, that when we talk about learning tables and Braille tables, that something like music, it's important if a child wants to be able to read music to learn Braille music. There's nothing that says, oh, you can't read Braille music if you haven't done UEB, because you can. You don't have to be majorly proficient, do you, in UEB to read Braille music? I wouldn't have thought so. Not proficient in UEB, certainly. I mean, it would be a red herring to start teaching someone Braille music before they'd done their pre-Braille and they understood how to read Braille, right? So, of course, you're going to teach the alphabet first. But beyond that, it's amazing, actually, what a child's mind can do. It's a sponge. It just soaks things up. I learned Braille music quite early, so that's why I'm quite glad that there's that opportunity. No, absolutely. And yes, a crotchet C in Braille music is the same as a TH sign in literary Braille. And I don't think that makes a difference. I think it's quite okay to say in a music lesson this is what your dots one four five six looks like and in an english lesson this is what your dots one four five six look like actually as a blind person you already have two meanings for the th sign because it means th but it also means this so why not introduce a crotchet c at the same time and kate reiterates that point you teach maths at the same time as ueb i liked the point was lee davidson i think who made it about x or leah davidson i do beg your pardon see this is where braille comes in very useful jaws is pronouncing you lee davidson but on my braille display i'm reading l-e-a-h that is a faux pas that i would have uh, quite easily made if it wasn't for braille but yeah made the point that exposing other children in the class to braille is hugely important for social inclusion and i think that is quite an important point we could talk and talk and talk um would i still encourage a question Uh, Let me just get back to that question in the chat. Just a second. Sorry. Um, Paul asked, would you still encourage using the twos and Lorimer to test children's? Oh, I see. To test knowledge of Braille. I've not actually come across that test. I have come across the Neil analysis of reading ability. The Neil analysis is an interesting test. It used to be a very common test that was used in mainstream schools. 
it's gone out of fashion now in mainstream school and it was re-standardized by the University of Birmingham for Braille a long time ago and that re-standardization hasn't happened for a long time very grudgingly RNIB updated the tests so they are now available in UEB and you can still use them and because they're really the only measure that's in any way ratified albeit loosely I would probably use the Neil analysis if you can still get hold of a copy of it but uh, yeah there is a gap in the market for reading tests and things we've had a question from Alison who I'm going to try and unmute there we go. You should be unmuted now if you want to ask your question. Hi, nice to have you here. Happy early morning from the US. I'm curious, um, just, you know, and if we don't have time for this question, that's totally fine. We got because we got the Braille bar. Um, but I'm going to be doing many presentations on Braille at my local schools and such in the next month or so. And I was wondering, how do I how do I explain to the kids that Braille isn't just for blind people, that it's not just an us thing? I think because it, it does help now with a little bit more technology because it makes it a little bit more fun. I think, you know, the fact that it is useful, obviously, but before when you just had a big clunky Perkins brailer and, and whatever, I think now that there's a little bit more technology about it, it does make it a little bit more cool and children, you know, youngsters like things that are cool. It's a difficult one. I don't know whether Matthew has any ideas. I mean, it's hard because actually... I think Braille is kind of just an us thing to a point, but it's what it permits that I think makes it the inclusive tool that it is. And actually that happens on quite a fundamental level. I would be thinking about playing cards and simple things like lift buttons or elevator buttons, those sorts of things that if you can read Braille, you'll be able to access Braille playing cards and play cards alongside sighted peers. And you'll be able to read the elevator buttons like sighted peers would. And it's, I think, probably day-to-day things like that that I would talk about rather than big, heavy books that actually, yes, all right, fine, really only a diehard Braille user is going to read a big, heavy Braille book. And make it clear as well, it's an alternative that if you can read print, you can read print and that's fine. But it's just another skill in your toolbox. So you might not want to use Braille all the time, but it's just something that's cool to learn. Yeah, that's a really good idea. And think of that. Thanks. No problem. Thank you for the question. Paul Lynch in the chat was asking what our views were on Lego Braille bricks for Braille literacy. To be honest with you, I've not seen the Braille Lego bricks. By the time they'd come out, I had left Exol, and they're really only available to local authorities and to schools. So I haven't had the opportunity to get my hands on them. I think Elizabeth has raised her hands, and I'd like to take that because I have a feeling that Elizabeth McCann might have an answer from the Scottish Sensory Centre. So I'll unmute you, Elizabeth, if you want to come in on that. Uh, thanks very much. Um, yes, I put in the chat, um, Scottish Sensory Centre, or my boss, uh, Professor John Ravenscroft, um, has got a grant from the Lego Foundation uh, to do some research into, um, well, really teaching of Braille literacy. Uh, and obviously, the because it's through Lego Foundation, um, Lego Braille Bricks are going to be involved in that. You do not need to have any um, experience of, of Lego Braille Bricks uh, to uh, in, take part in the survey. It's going to be a, a nationwide survey, actually international survey. It's going to the US, Canada, um, parts of Europe, Australia, New Zealand, etc. So it's going to be the biggest um, piece of research into the teaching of Braille literacy to children that's ever been done. So it's hugely exciting. I'm really excited to find out what we're, we're going to know. 
We could talk for three hours about the pros and cons of, of Lego Braille bricks. Uh, I think um, it, they are fairly well known in terms of their um, disadvantages, in terms of the difference in size between uh, the cell uh, of a Braille cell and the Lego Braille brick cell. Um, I wouldn't like to try and um, predict the outcome of the research that we're doing. Um, however, Lego Foundation itself it really sees these bricks as an inclusive tool. And I think we'd all agree that uh, raising awareness of Braille um, amongst children who are fully sighted, um, you know, allowing uh, children who are Braille users to interact with their sighted peers can only be a good thing. Um, as to their efficacy in teaching of Braille, well, the study is not going to look at that because Braille bricks actually haven't been on the market for long enough. So we can't do a, a longitudinal uh, study like that. But um, yes, another conference on the pros and cons of Lego Braille bricks. There we go. Something to think about. But please, um, I have put the link in the in the chat. Um, I would really urge anybody who's teaching uh, young children um, Braille or you know children up to the age of 12, please click on the survey. Doesn't matter if you don't know about uh, Lego Braille bricks, you'll get out of the survey before that, um, these questions. Um, but we'd really like to know um, how people are teaching Braille and, and things like that. Thank you. Thank you very much, Elizabeth, and always good to hear from the Scottish Sensory Centre. I just wanted to go back to the question about note-takers very quickly. Do use them, but recognise their limitations, I think is what I would say. They are not a replacement for a computer, but they are a replacement for a brailer and could come in useful, particularly in secondary education, not so much in primary. And for just general reading, because you can just so easily get information onto the note taker so it just the general convenience of it is good isn't it really but you can't beat a good old perkins just for making a few notes we hope you've enjoyed this episode of brailcast extra you can find more braille related content by subscribing to brailcast all one word in your podcast client of choice or listening to brailcast connecting the dots for brailists everywhere on your smart speaker for the latest information about future Brailleist events and how to join live, subscribe to our weekly email newsletter at brailleists.org slash newsletter slash sign up. You can also visit our events page at brailleists.org slash events. If you have comments on this recording or suggestions of topics or guests for future events, we'd love to hear from you. Please email help at brailleists.org. You can also find the Braillists on Twitter at Braillists or on Facebook, facebook.com slash Foundation. Finally, if you like what you've heard, spread the word. We welcome new listeners and live participants alike. So if you know other people who are interested in Braille, please tell them where to find us. In the meantime, on behalf of everyone at the Braillists, thanks for listening and bye for now. Six Dots to Success is presented in collaboration with Sight and Sound Technology Limited on the web at sightandsound.co.uk or sightandsoundtechnology.ie. Additional costs are defrayed by an Activate Fund of the Churchill Fellowship on the web at churchillfellowship.org.